This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Tina Seeker, who is a lecturer in media and cultural studies at the University of Newcastle, about her new book, Climate Technology, Gender and Justice, The Standpoint of the Vulnerable, which is published by Springer Press. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, This is an unbelievably well-timed book, considering... um, both the media attention and the lived reality of, of the climate crisis uh, that's been happening, um, not just in the UK, but across the world over the course of, of the last kind of month or, or six weeks or so. And I guess the place to start with the book is is where it fits into your kind of uh, general set of, of thinking and, and, and your academic career. What, what sort of motivated you to, to write the book? Um, well, uh, I started to do a lot of work around environmental issues in my postdoc, um, which I did uh, at Simon Fraser University with Andrew Feenberg, um, who holds the Canadian uh, Research Chair in Philosophy of Technology. Um, and uh, I've got a, a strong interest in philosophy of technology. Um, but I started to do more and more research on um, sort of environmental issues, but I wanted to uh, approach it from a different angle. Um, and one of the things that I started to read about is, um, you know, I picked up this book by Clive Hamilton on geoengineering Um, which he takes a kind of critical perspective and I found it really compelling and I thought, you know, it would be really interesting to kind of marry my interest in philosophy of technology with uh, environmentalism and geoengineering just struck me as something that was very odd um, and had an element of science fiction that was being considered in earnest by some very significant um, political and economic actors um, so that's that's sort of where what was the genesis of the project. I mean, it, it's really interesting. The, I guess, kind of critical take you've got um, around some of these, I guess, kind of technological uh, solutions to the climate crisis. And it's probably worth kind of thinking a bit about um, not just the sort of technological solutions, but also the sort of current understandings uh, of climate change and, and how you you sketch out their their limitations or their um, their problems, particularly actually um, from a feminist perspective, which is one of the kind of uh, core insights and, and aspects of the book. Yeah, I I found um, 
you know, it, it was really interesting with a lot of the climate science that, that I was reading and some of the modeling that um, the way it was being communicated to the public and, and sort of the demand for, um, you know, objective, rigorous, you know, yes, no answers um, really didn't match up with the way the science was practiced. Um, and I was interested in kind of seeing how how scientists and science communicators um, were trying to balance the the riskiness and the uncertainty of the science, um, which was fundamentally objective in the sense that it was um, the findings were based on scientific consensus. But then communicating that, that to the public was really difficult because any any space for uncertainty sort of opened the floodgates to, oh, then we don't really know. Um, and the sort of science denialism can come in. So I was trying to really balance, you know, how do you balance uncertainty with scientific rigor? And I found that feminist science studies really did that well. I, I guess there's kind of um, maybe three things going on there. One is the kind of the science itself. Two is the, um, I guess, the kind of reception and the extent to which people are involved in, in the, the reception. And three is kind of decisions about um, not just kind of what um, is the best thing to do, but the process of, of taking decisions as well. And one of the things the book does is talk about the way that, in the specific case of geoengineering research, it's not just a kind of a a problem for the science but it's also a problem of, of methods and modeling um and it'd be quite useful actually if you could sketch out the kind of the geoengineering research you're um engaging with and, uh, and offering a critique of before we get into the kind of more detailed questions about um the methods the book is interested in sure um so the geoengineering in a in a sort of very basic sense i think a royal society has the best definition which is um it's it's deliberate uh technical intervention into the earth's climate system and and the objective is to um mitigate or moderate climate change uh so so the characteristics are that it's deliberate large scale and technological um and there are Two primary uh, methods, carbon dioxide removal and solar radiation management. I focus on solar radiation management, but just briefly, uh, CDR um, is technologies that uh, they address the root cause of climate change a little bit better because they're actually technologies that are trying to remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. So something like uh, ocean fertilization, which is a method where you seed the ocean with iron particulates, which are supposed to enhance phytoplankton blooms that absorb carbon, and the carbon then sinks to the bottom of the ocean. Um, so that's direct removal. But solar radiation management, which I focus on, is uh, techniques and technologies that are trying to offset increased uh, greenhouse gas concentrations by um, sort of tinkering with the earth in a way that makes it absorb less solar radiation. So the primary technology I focus on is um, is uh, solar radiation management that uses or, or kind of mi it mimics volcanic eruptions. 
And so uh, the method is basically what they found was after large volcanic eruptions, there was a uh, marked decrease in global average temperatures. Um, And it was primarily because of the sulfate particulates that got into the atmosphere, which then had a reflectivity that reflected some sun's rays back into the atmosphere. And so it was thought that, you know, if we could um, see the, the atmosphere with these, or the stratosphere actually, with these um, sulfate particulates, then potentially we could mimic those cooling effects so that we could increase the albedo of the Earth, the reflectivity, um, so that we could, um, you know, actually have some some global cooling. I mean, it's a really good um, example of of the issues the book is grappling with, uh, because immediately, you know, you're drawn to both almost the kind of science fiction elements um, of that, and you know, various kind of uh, popular sci-fi films have uh, talked about these kinds of processes. And then also, you know, the technical elements, this is quite an opaque and and difficult to follow uh, area of science, but the fact that it includes basically every single person and indeed all of the rest of the earth in terms of um, how decisions are going to be made. Uh, And I wonder if you could sort of stake out the the sense of a a feminist kind of critique, uh, not just of those processes, but of... um, of the kind of where the the climate change debate is in general at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So for geoengineering, I mean, it's uh, um, it's it's a an area of of research where there's not a lot of feminist analysis. I think in um, there's one article that um, is out there that tries to do a feminist analysis, and it focuses a little bit on the science itself. I think it's actually called Gender and Geoengineering. Um, and uh, it focuses a little bit on the lack of representation of women in climate science as well as in, in geoengineering and the way that the science itself uh, represents a kind of masculine hierarchical model of science, big science, big technology, um, which, which is problematic in the kind of ways that it sees the earth um, in that it kind of replicates a lot of the assumptions that have led to the climate crisis in the first place, um, but uh, in, in terms of where where it where it is, um, there's not a lot of feminist analysis of uh, geoengineering specifically, but there is a um, a whole host of actors, private, academic, policy, you know, government that are pushing to have more research in geoengineering. And so the big, the biggest actors are people like uh, David Keith, who's a Harvard physicist, um, Ken Caldera, uh, who's at Stanford. Marsha McNutt is one um, rare woman who is an oceanographer that um, works a little bit on, on uh, geoengineering um, Royal Society has done a report, uh, National Academy of Sciences, NASA, um, the IPCC in their fifth report called for more research. Um, a lot of private think tanks, interestingly enough, have um, held research forums and conferences on geoengineering and ones that, you know, very ironically um, had 
you know, they still hold climate denialism as their fundamental position on climate change, but have sort of skipped over the step of accepting it to, um, you know, embrace uh, geoengineering as a possible solution, like the American Enterprise Institute, um, uh, Hudson Institute, Heartland Institute, um, and uh, Bill Gates, a lot of billionaires, Richard Branson, um, corporations haven't uh, done uh, a ton except in backing research. And I think it's important to note that uh, David Keith at, at Harvard is on um, hoping to run a trial in Arizona of um, of the, the geoengineering, the, the sulfate geoengineering, that's sort of my area. Um, a lot of opposition to geoengineering. Um, Clive Hamilton, who's a professor in Australia, public ethics, Alan Robach, uh, Rutgers, um, the Etc. Group, which uh, does a lot of research online, which is a sort of NGO. Um, so there's a lot of, of work being done. The, the British um, Parliament and the Congress a few years ago did a joint um, sort of a congressional and parliamentary panel where they did a lot of, um, you know, called in sort of experts to put together a report on geoengineering, including people like David Keith. Uh, so there is a lot of, of work and a lot of um, um, movement to have trials and tests. There was a, a test that was supposed to happen a few years ago in the UK called the SPICE Project, um, but there was uh, opposition to it, and there were some problems with funding, I believe, so it, it never really took off. But um, Oxford still has a um, geoengineering group that looks at sulfate geoengineering specifically. I mean, it, it did strike me as, as just kind of incredibly crazy that um, you're almost more likely to see a think tank that's been heavily involved in denying that climate change is happening or, you know, producing evidence to kind of uh, muddy the waters than you are to see a woman's voice in, in any of these uh, debates, both as, you know, a, a kind of advocate policymaker um, or, or as, you know, someone sort of offering a, a critical perspective. And obviously this, you know, opens up um, uh, feminist uh, critique really, really kind of straightforwardly actually in it, you know, uh, it's it, it's an area that um, in the kind of the need for a feminist approach is is so so clear, and you've got a kind of specific um, I suppose approach and take um, which you call feminist contextual empiricism, uh, drawn from uh, Longino's um, work, and it'd be great to hear a bit about um, what that kind of specific approach is um, and how you've you've kind of. Um, found it or, or come to it as, as the right way of um, getting into these um, questions about who is represented and who isn't in geoengineering? Yeah, sure. I, I came to uh, feminist contextual empiricism and, and Longino's work um, beginning with an interest I had in, in ecofeminism. Um, and uh, some of the concerns I had with ecofeminism, you know, this idea that um, you know, the marginalization of, of women and nature sort of are, are inextricably linked, um, or the oppression of, of women and nature have these sort of similarities, structural similarities. And I found that ecofeminism 
one of the things I was concerned with was that it uh, essentialized femininity in ways that I was uncomfortable with uh, when it came to science in particular. Um, and I sort of sought out to look at, you know, what are some other approaches um, to science rooted in feminism that could account for uh, scientific practice in ways that didn't do that. Um, and I taught a course on gender and science um, uh, at Simon Fraser University, because I'm originally uh, uh, from, from Canada. Uh, and I ended up teaching a course. And um, through my research for that syllabus, I came across uh, standpoint theory, Sandra Harding's work. Um, I taught on uh, techno-feminism. And then I came to sort of get in the area of feminist epistemology more specifically. And I found that feminist contextual empiricism did a really useful job of, of retaining the scientific rigor, um, you know, the empirical adequacy, the um, scientific method um, in ways that were you know, rigorous and, 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 and scientific and grounded in, in empiricism, but that also considered how values and background assumptions and norms were uh, an inextricable part of scientific practice as well. Um, and so kind of, you know, holding those two together, that science could be value-laden but also be rigorous and how could you, you know, create a kind of tension between the two. Um, and Longino's work, I, I really found I was drawn to um, because it could do that. I mean, within it, there is the kind of um, the proposition that you can do kind of good science um and this has a set of characteristics uh, or, or criteria and, and that is, is very much actually the kind of the rest of the book you know where you're sort of considering how uh, geoengineering is being done uh, and whether it fits um or comes up to these sorts of standards um and maybe we might take them in turn actually because um what the book does is offer not just the kind of critique um, of where we are with geoengineering, but also I think some uh, some guidance on what could be done differently um, to make it um, better, you know, to, to to improve it, rather than just kind of saying, "Oh, it's a big problem," you know, and it it sort of can't can't be solved. And I guess the first um, aspect is this term ontological heterogeneity, um, and I wonder if you could sort of unpack that. Um, but also talk about how it tells us things about who gets included and who who gets excluded as as, as well um, in the current geoengineering approach. Sure. So so um, ontological heterogeneity is one of the um, contextual values in science that Longinot argues we need to embrace. And there's a lot of trepidation that you know this idea that uh, heterogeneous science that's too open. Uh, is problematic because that is inimical to scientific rigor. And so what it what it is um, and how it applies to kind of geoengineering in, in particular, um, it's a mode of scientific practice that um, focuses on how uh, science itself should be uh, participatory, uh, that it should be open to difference, um, that marginal findings shouldn't be considered uh, inferior or eliminable, 
um, that monocausal and unicausal thinking are actually not good science. Um, so when you would apply it to geoengineering, you would kind of look at the practice of science itself and, and ask questions around, you know, uh, why do we, um, you know, uh, sort of put the global temperature averages over local specificities in order of importance? So, you know, why don't we look at specific effects of uh, geoengineering? One of the potential negative effects is that it could lead to problems with the ozone, that it could mess up monsoons over Southeast Asia. Um, why is it that we look just at CO2 concentrations? What about methane? Um, the models also don't do a good job of looking at the distribution of, of impact, so different economic sectors, responsibility. And it's this idea that heterogeneity doesn't dilute scientific focus. Um, I think that even the ways in which a heterogeneous science can get into issues of, of politics, where, you know, the herbal, uh, the ur urban versus rural binary that's in a lot of the models um, is assumed um, is Eurocentric. Um, it's, it reflects the colonial history where effects in the global north tend to be prioritized over the global south. Um, you know, why is it that we don't look at uh, producers versus consumers in terms of responsibility? Um, so, you know, paying attention to deviations, uh, model disagreement, um, different time scales, that all of these things are... Um, practices in science that should be embraced rather than uh, denied, which is something that a lot of sort of traditional science does. And what about novelty, which is the next of the uh, important criteria? Yeah, so so novelty is another contextual value. It's um, sort of the relationship between uh, theory and explanation. And, and it's interesting because you could make the argument that geoengineering is novel, um, because, you know, it has sort of, it's really exciting. It's, it's, um, uh, media highlights this quite a bit. It's interdisciplinary. Um, the intercomparison projects are really sort of compelling as well. Um, but there's a difference, I think, between being technically innovative, um, and being novel the way that Longino understands it. And so novelty in, in climate science and geoengineering science is more about uh, the practice of science. So, you know, using local data sets would be something that's very novel. It's not used very much. Uh, experiential knowledge, um, biodiversity. I was really interested in some research that's done on paleoecology, uh, which looks at, you know, it could look at how solar geoengineering might impact how um, organisms interact with the environment through time. Um, biological, geological evidence, um, you know, not just models that are based on physical science, but embodied knowledge. One, one thing I, I found really compelling as well for solar geoengineering was aesthetics, where one of the side effects could be that our skies could turn very white. 
Um, and the lack of blue skies could have a very sort of psychological effect on people, um, which, you know, is really interesting also. And then issues of gender, race, and class, how these different sort of intersecting groups are going to be affected in very different ways. Um, some of the most uh, dangerous side effects of climate change around the, the monsoons, um, for example, are going to impact uh, the poorest over Southeast Asia, you know, with droughts and floods. Um, and that is sort of mentioned in the geoengineering research, but it isn't really grappled with. I mean, what, what you're pointing to there is, is the importance of kind of power and power relationships. Um, and, I, and I found that really quite compelling in the book, the sense of, you know, we unfortunately, we, we have this approach to dealing with um, climate change and the climate crisis, which, which takes really kind of no account um, of the uneven power relations um, that, that, are, that are present here. And I guess um, within that, there's also a kind of a, a sense of um, what the benefits are going to be and, and, and how they're, I suppose, distributed. So it, it'd be um, interesting to hear about this kind of problem of, of power relationships that uh, Longino is, is kind of drawing our, our attention to. Yeah, in terms of, of power, I mean, there's there's a lot to be said about how, um, you know, you can look at different sort of areas or spaces where power um, is is present. And one of the biggest ones is in the effects where, you know, that um, the monsoons I mentioned, ocean acidification, um, in terms of impact on people, because it is going to be the case that the most um, problematic effects of uh, side effects of uh, solar geoengineering is going to be felt by the people who are, who are already marginalized. Um, I think that uh, what, another one, you know, even just considering the idea um, of monsoons, um, looking at in a granular way, um, you know, if there is going to be a um, increase in monsoons or drought over Southeast Asia, you know, it is going to be people who are poor, who are agricultural, women, there's going to be displacement, um, you know, all of these types of things, food security, um, and the people who are going to be deciding to implement geoengineering, I think, you know, are obviously going to be people in the global north. So it's re constituting these uh, colonial relationships. Um, and, you know, it's, there's going to be this sort of migration of people uh, that comes out of it. And, and you know, our, our um, particularly in the West, our current um, approach to displacement due to uh, conflict or poverty or climate change uh, has not been good at all. Um, so I think that that kind of disempowerment, that lack over the lack of decision making power of people who are going to be impacted, I think it's a real problem. And I think that the way that the science is occurring in the private sector, away from public scrutiny, um, it's very complicated science. 
um, that it is cheap science. So, you know, putting sulfate to the atmosphere is something that is not necessarily difficult to do on a, a, a scale um, that, you know, it, it is possible for countries to decide to do it. Um, that the power over decision-making is really in a few hands. And I think even issues of intergenerational justice is a problem because if you start geoengineering, solar geoengineering, one of the other side effects is that if you stop abruptly, um, temperature increases um, are thought to be you know, going to be observed as, as quite rapid. Um, and then what does this do for the ability of future generations to make decisions? And I think all of that really kind of coalesces um, around this idea that it is a very hierarchical science that requires centralized decision-making in ways that replicate the extractive scientific practices of the past that have given rise to the problem of um, climate disruption and climate change. And I think that those issues around power have to be uh, considered in more detail, and they haven't been thus far. And, and how would we do a kind of a, a response to the crisis that, that took human needs and human capabilities more seriously? Yeah, I think that, you know, taking and, and doing an analysis of the science through this kind of feminist analysis is, is very helpful. Um, but I think also, you know, thinking about the earth, I mean, another one of the, the models is around um, diffusion of power. Um, but, you know, thinking about the earth as an independent system that, you know, has feedbacks that is an agent um, is one way we can start to to do that. So, you know, looking at Earth systems as constituted agents, so this idea that it's not just about us exerting power over nature, um, you know, how we construct the natural world as an object of knowledge and how we've sort of looked at it as um, something that could be exploited, that that has to, to change. One of the Interesting things that I found in the research um, I did was, you know, countries that have started to give the natural world a legal status. So the the Ganges River in India or um, Ecuador has done this as well, where, you know, it, it is a moral agent. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the idea of uh, the Anthropocene gets us closer. I sort of have a um, a, uh, a relationship to the idea of the Anthropocene that's a little kind of contradictory because I think that it is an idea that um, gets us closer to thinking about the ways in which our actions have um, led to climate disruption. But it also can reify this idea that we have power over nature and um, propel us towards more technical solutions. So this idea of the techno-anthropocene. Um, and, and I think that, you know, taking those, those actions and looking at um, issues of social responsibility, scientific practices that are, you know, inclusive and empowering um, getting, um, looking at the metaphors we use to talk about uh, 
our relationship with the natural world. Um, I think all of those things are, are ways in which we can use feminist science to do better science and to perhaps look at climate mitigation strategies that are not premised um, you know, scientifically in terms of epistemology and ontology on models and values and uh, approaches that are consistent with how we've always done things and sort of are taking it to, you know, a kind of laughable extreme in some cases. And at the same time, actually, the, the book um, closes with a reflexive moment that, you know, kind of suggests that um, even feminist contextual empiricist approaches um, might um, be improved, maybe, or um, kind of further developed. Um and, and I was really interested to see actually that moment where the book had got this critical engagement with a set of scientific practices, but then in turn closed with its own uh, critical reflections. Um, and maybe, you know, obviously standpoint theory and techno-feminism are the two sets of ideas, which they themselves, you know, have a, a kind of a, a sort of long literature and, and history associated with them. But, but, but maybe uh, as a way of closing, you, you might kind of reflect on um, perhaps the limits uh, of feminist contextual empiricism. Yeah, um, I think that it's always important when, you know, you're drawn to a particular approach to retain that element of, of critical analysis where you look at how it can be improved or what other models or, or frameworks can offer to it. And I found that, um, you know, I, I kind of like uh, feminist standpoint theory because it is um, more radical. Um, and, you know, standpoint theory, I think um, it takes uh, this idea that, you know, looking at the empirical part of feminist contextualist empiricism and saying, you know, maybe even that empiricist element is too positivist or too endocentric. Um, and, you know, highlighting the idea that knowledge that emerges from marginalized communities, um, you know, that science from below is inherently better um, because it, it, it sort of speaks directly to issues of power, injustice, race, class, privilege, um, and sort of saying that knowledge from those spaces of marginalization, you know, embodied indigenous knowledge is a priori better, more objective knowledge. And I think it's just sort of worth considering what that would look like and how that is justified. Um, and perhaps taking even the empirical element of feminist contextualist empiricism and looking critically at it is, at least in terms of a, an analytic exercise, something that is really important. Um, and then techno-feminism, um, I like because it draws attention to the relationship not only with science, but with the technology and the issue of design. Um, and, uh, you know, looking at the idea of gender and technology is mutually constituted so that, you know, gender relations are reflected in technologies and um, that technologies in turn shape uh, gender relations, that, that technologies are not neutral, um, they're shaped by intentions. And it, it sort of draws our, our attention to this idea that perhaps um, we can shape 
technologies in progressive ways. And so the idea of women being involved in science is not just about them being there as sort of placeholders, but this idea that they can shape technologies in ways that reflect different values, different social values that are not values that they have because they are women, but because they have experienced very specific Uh, manifestations of marginalization that have made it so that they can speak to issues that other groups can't. And so I think that that, uh, Longino talks about how how to do science, not feminine science, but doing science as a feminist. So that there's nothing innate about the values of science um, that are feminine, but there is uh, something that comes out of feminist practice that is a result of historical marginalization and shared experiences that draws women's attention to certain issues that are not looked at by groups that are not women. Um, And, you know, then you have standpoint theory being a little bit more intersectional about this. You have techno-feminism drawing attention to issues of design of technology um, that I think, you know, sort of ties everything together uh, really well. Are those kind of uh, critical moments something you're going to be working on in the future? Are you doing more uh, kind of uh, STS approaches to climate change from a feminist perspective? Or have you kind of, have you had quite, quite enough of um, reading long kind of complex technical uh, scientific uh, manuals and are you going to be moving on to something else? Um, I'm still working um, on on this. I, I did another, you know, I've done some work on sort of looking more at um, intersectional scientific practice and geoengineering. But um, yeah, my, my primary interest, interest is in feminist science studies. So, you know, sticking with that, but I've also done some work around um, food science, nutritional science, um, looking at uh, nutrigenomics. So, you know, sort of nutritional science based on uh, analysis using feminist science studies of uh, nutritional science and assumptions around, you know, what makes food, um, you know, how do we use science to reach the conclusion that, you know, X food is is healthy and Y food is not. Um, And so sort of applying similar frameworks to look at uh, diet to look at health science, to look at public policy around health, uh, which is, yeah, something I'm doing uh, some work on as well. And are you doing a book on that or series of papers, uh, just a big research project? Yeah, I'm actually looking to put together a project around um, superfoods in particular. Um, so, uh, looking to put together a book, um, I'm working on a a book proposal for a feminist science based analysis of superfoods that would draw attention, not only to scientific practice, but issues of power of access, of food security as well. Um, I'm actually going uh, this weekend to London for a, uh, a research group on, on food security and, and food justice um, that is really looking at the practice of science. And so hopefully some connections can be made there for a, for a research project 
um, looking at uh, you know approaches to to food and nutrition that might incorporate a feminist dimension to it.